0: Imagine with me this morning that you received a letter in the mail saying that your great aunt Bertha, that you didn't know very well, that that had passed away, left you a million dollars. You'd likely be skeptical, wouldn't you? Like, okay, what what kind of joke is this? I mean, you... I mean, someone that you hadn't spoke to in all of those years would leave you all of that money. But you would at least look into it, wouldn't you? Why would you look into it with the hope that it was true? You would hope that it was true. That's how the Apostle Paul assumes you and I would approach the question of the resurrection everything inside of us should want it to be true in his biography on Steve Jobs Walter Isaacson records that just before Jobs died he was asked whether or not he believed in God and Jobs said that throughout his life he had seasons where he did believe in God and seasons where he did not believe in God and as he was being faced with the prospect of his own death, he said he found himself believing in God more and more. The interviewer asked why. And Job said, because I just can't accept that the body just turns off one day and then it's all over and you're gone forever. And then one day the sun in our, of our solar system goes out and that is the end of human history. He said, I just can't accept that. There's got to be more than that. We just can't be an illusion of consciousness arising from the fortuitous cosmic accident. Incidentally, he said, that's why he never liked to put on-off switches on Apple products, because he didn't like the concept of being able to just flip a switch and turn something completely off. So I'll say it again. Whether or not... The resurrection is true. You should want it to be true. And so the Apostle Paul's we're going to look at today in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 gives us the incredible news that it is true. It is true. Someone has entered into our greatest fear. The greatest fear that everyone in this room faces that everyone upon the face of the earth faces, and that greatest fear is death. Christ entered to, into our greatest fear. He defeated it, and he overturned it forever. Let's look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, and it says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to... In accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the Apostles. You see, Christianity is not just about primarily a better way to live or about how to have a fuller or more complete life here. It's about an unflinching hope in the face of death. The Christian hope is built on the actual resurrection of Jesus. Well, you ask, how do we know that it happened? Let me point out some of the pieces of Paul's evidence that he points out in the passage that we just read first he says all of this happened according to the prophecies of the old testament as you read through the old testament you will see hundreds of prophecies written hundreds of years before the time of christ predicting his life his birth his death and his resurrection the coming of jesus was communicated through direct statements and symbols and foreshadowings on almost every page of the Old Testament. And honestly, this might be the most convincing evidence of all to me. It's like you're hearing someone described by 30 different authors over 1,500 years, and then the Gospels, he shows up. And the people living in that time can point back and say, that's him. That's him. Everything that the Old Testament authors wrote came true in jesus secondly paul points to a series of eyewitnesses in that passage he said he appeared to peter or cephas and then after him to all of the apostles these apostles was peter was first among them he he would go to their death all of them would go to their death proclaiming what that jesus that they have seen was alive you might say well how do we know that they were not lying We all know throughout history, lots of people die for a lie. Yes, but people don't typically die for something they know to be a lie with nothing to gain from it. The apostles gained no power, no privilege, no prestige, no money by claiming that Jesus had been raised from the dead. The only thing they gained was a martyr's death. It brought them only persecution, pain, and poverty, nor was it just a commitment to the teachings of Jesus that kept them going, as in they believed in his teachings so much that they just wanted to see this movement take hold, so they made up these exaggerations about his resurrection and maintained them till his death. No, that was not the case. Peter himself is a pretty convincing example here. After he had followed Christ for three years on this earth watching him, he denied him three times in the space of a few hours as Jesus was being crucified in order to save his own skin. That same Peter, who caved three times, would go on to his death proclaiming that Jesus was Lord, never once changing his story. Why? Because he had seen a resurrected Lord. That is why. Paul also says, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. That's important. Because some people dismiss the resurrection as wishful thinking or as a hallucination. Paul says 500 people don't typically hallucinate all at once and hear the same things and corroborate the same story. And when Paul writes this, He says, many of these people are still alive. Go ask them for yourself. They will corroborate what I am writing to you now. Then he says, then he appeared to James. You know what's remarkable about that? Is that James was the half-brother of Jesus. According to Josephus, the secular Jewish historian, James became the leader of the Jerusalem church and was stoned For his belief that Jesus was the resurrected Son of God. So let me ask you how many of you in here have an older brother? Yeah, maybe 40% of you in here have have an older brother. You know, what would it take to convince you that your older brother was the Son of God? You say maybe the Son of the Devil. But the Son of God, what convinced James? He saw his half-brother resurrected. Finally, Paul says in verse 8, he says, what about me? I was the last person who wanted Jesus to be alive. I built my life and my career on him not being the Son of God. Something happened in my life that completely changed me. And all of these things show you that it was not a fairy tale. It actually happened. And sure, you can come up with a different theory about what happened, but I'm telling you that none of them are as convincing as the simple fact that Jesus actually raised from the dead. And he is alive. And because that's true, Paul says, I see everything differently now. Everything is different. Because he lives, Jesus is who he says he is. Paul says, I was formerly a persecutor of the church, but now he says, I proclaim Jesus as the Son of God. Not just, he he says persecutor of the church. Let me add a little bit more color around that for you. He was murdering the church. He was seeking out the first century church to put them to death. That's who's writing these words. Paul had originally found the message of Jesus objectionable. If Jesus was the Messiah, he had all of these questions that many of you sitting out there today Still have. Why is there still pain in the world? If Jesus is in charge, then why is Rome still oppressing Israel? But Paul said, if Jesus was raised from the dead, then my opinions about his message are irrelevant. If he was raised from the dead, he is who he says he is, and he did what he said he would do. And I want to say this, sensitive, you know, being sensitive to everyone out there today, but, because I know some of you come here today with unanswered questions. Maybe they are similar to Paul's questions. If God is love, why is there so much pain in the world? If God is real, why didn't he answer this prayer that I prayed? And all of these are valid questions, and I might add, all asked by writers in the Bible themselves. But here's the point. If Jesus is who he says he is, then there are answers to those questions, even if we don't know them yet. There are. If we know that Jesus was raised from the dead, that means there is an answer to the question of my heart, even if I don't understand it or I cannot grasp it yet. The question you should be asking this morning, is Jesus who he says that he is. I know we all have questions and they are real, but if Jesus was raised from the dead, you can trust him with those questions because he is the only one to conquer death. Number one, we see because he lives, Jesus is who he says he is. Because he lives, number two, we can be forgiven. I love how Paul says in verse nine, for I am the least forgiven of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. How does a former murderer of the church go to being one of the fathers of the church? Imagine how hard that was for the first century church. Just imagine if a percentage of the people in this room were murdered by one individual and that one individual has a radical conversion and then wants to come and worship with us. That would be very difficult in our sinful hearts. But that's what God did in the life of the Apostle Paul. You think there are things that would get you canceled for life in the kingdom of God and overseeing, which is overseeing the torture and execution Of innocent Christians. You would think that that would permanently get you banned from the church. But Paul said, because of the resurrection, I wasn't canceled. The resurrection meant that I could be redeemed. You see, the resurrection meant that whatever Jesus was doing on the cross, it worked. It worked. And what he did was cancel our sins debt. The scripture prophesied that Jesus would die for the sins of the world that every sin ever committed would be put upon him on that cross. That's the reason the cross was so unspeakably awful. Because the wrath of God that was due to you and I for our sin was poured out upon Christ on that cross. He was dying for the murderer, the betrayal, the dishonesty, the selfishness, the uncleanness, and the abuse. And because of that, Paul knew that he could be forgiven. And the resurrection means that this morning, you can be forgiven too. You might say, Pastor Robert, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the awful sins I've committed. I'm gonna go out on a limb here, and I'm gonna say, I don't think anyone in this room has been murdering Christians. I don't think so. I think I'm pretty safe making that assumption. If God can take an awful, wicked heart of a murderer and redeem him to be a church father, to write the majority of the New Testament... He can do the same thing for you. Paul would say, I was a persecutor. How could God love me? A murderer to which we could go back to Isaiah chapter 53. But he was wounded for my transgressions, he was bruised for my iniquities. The price that brought me peace was laid upon him, and by his stripes. I was healed, and that's true for you too. On the cross, Jesus became your sin, all of it. He became your selfishness, your compromised integrity. He became your broken promises. He became your marital unfaithfulness. He became all of those things you've hidden and lied about. God laid all of those things upon him. Think about your worst sin. It was placed upon Jesus, and he was punished for it. The penalty for our sin is death. Jesus, the perfect, innocent Son of God, was killed for your sin. Then his dead body was placed in a grave, and three days later, he conquered death. And that's why we're here today. That's why we meet every Sunday, is to serve a risen Lord and Savior, we meet here at Bethel every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. If this is your first time, we are in this room every Sunday. We would love to have you here so we can worship this fact that He is risen. That's why we come together. I love how Corey Tin Boom always said, He said, God put our sin in the deepest part of the sea and then put a sign that said, No fishing allowed. <laughs> no fishing allowed. And that and it's not just forgiveness and a new perspective that we receive. Paul was changed. When you trust Christ, the power of the resurrection, the power that brought Jesus up from the grave, actually, it comes into you too. In Christ, the murderer becomes the lover. The racist becomes a humble servant. The cheating husband becomes the faithful father. And the addict becomes the trusted friend. That is what happens When we trust Christ, Paul says, by the grace of God, I now am what I am. And that's because God made him who knew no sin to become my sin. Paul writes that I might become the righteousness of God in him. And now in him, I am a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. And that can be true of you too. Number three, because he lives, death has no more sting. Paul writes in verse 55 of the same chapter, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is its permanence. That's what's so hard. If you've ever buried someone that you love, That's what stings is the permanence of death. When you bury them, you feel like you'll never see that person again, that their life is over and they are gone forever. But because of the resurrection, Christ takes that sting of death away. On the cross, Jesus took the curse of death into himself so that now when we are loved When our loved one enters into death, it is not permanent. It is just a transition. So we do not have to be afraid of death anymore. I remember hearing the the story of a little girl and her dad in a car together traveling. And they were driving down the interstate with this little girl in the back seat. And suddenly she began to scream, Daddy, there's a bee! There's a bee in the car! And the little girl was screaming because she was allergic to bees. And so the the dad pulled over. He rolled down the windows trying to to get that bee out of the car. And the the bee wasn't moving. And so he pulled over. He got in the back seat. And he cupped his hand up against the window to, to catch that bee. And then as he removed his hand, the bee started flying around in the car again. And of course, the little girl started screaming, Daddy, Daddy, the bee, it's loose again. And the little girl, and the daddy told the little girl, honey, there's no need to fear anymore. Because you see, daddy has taken the stinger in his hand of that bee. So you have no more need to fear because the bee cannot sting you. On the cross, Jesus took the stinger of death into his hands so there would be no more left for us. And so now when we approach death, while it is still incredibly sad, it has no sting. And that means that we do not have to be afraid of it. Let me give you one more story to kind of illustrate this point this morning. I heard of another story of a a dad trying to explain to his children about grandma's funeral His 12-year-old daughter was asking. She was sitting very quietly. She heard in the funeral message the pastor had referenced Psalms 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I think most of us have heard that famous psalm. It says, I will fear no evil. His little girl said, Daddy, what does it mean when Grandma has gone into the shadow of death? He was thinking about a way to answer her when a big truck passed by their car going the other way, and the, the truck cast this big shadow over their car. And he asked his daughter, you see that truck, honey? Let me ask you a question. Would you rather be hit by that truck or be hit by its shadow? He said, its shadow, of course. And he said, the truck of death hit jesus so only the shadow hits grandma death is an enemy that we still hate but we no longer need to fear death has been defanged its stinger is gone we often say it at times of death things like i lost grandma but in a truer sense we haven't lost them have we We have just lost contact with them for a while. That's why we don't say things like I'll never see them again or I'll never hug them again or I'll never hold them again. Why? Because he conquered death. Because he lives, you absolutely will hold, see, and hug them again. Not with your physical arms in this world, but in the life to come. There is a stark difference as a pastor, between doing a funeral for someone who is a follower of Christ than someone who is not. Because someone who is a follower of Christ, they understand this point, that death is not permanent. It's only, I'll see you again soon. I'll see you again soon. I've done funerals of people who are not followers of Christ. Man, it is tough because to them it is permanent. There is no hope of the resurrection. O grave, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Number four, because he lives, our suffering is light and momentary. And I don't want to make light of your pain, and neither would the Apostle Paul. Paul was personally familiar with the worst kinds of pain. The death of loved ones, the abandonment and betrayal by friends, loneliness, isolation, even torture. Yet Paul said, because of the resurrection, the worst of my pain is only temporary. And compared to what God has waiting for me in eternity, he says to the Corinthians, it is light and momentary. I know that there are those of you in here this morning that carry a heavy burden, that walked into this room this morning with pain and suffering. Many of you have heard of the name John Newton. Maybe if you hadn't heard this, you'll know this story. He was the writer of the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. I think we've probably all heard that song before. If you didn't know this, John Newton started out his adult life as the captain of a slave ship. But then he had a radical conversion and eventually locked arms with William Wilberforce and many other brave men and women to shut down the slave trade in the Western world. Newton's conversion to Christ, it cost him dearly. And the people asked him how he remained joyful in the midst of losing his friends, losing family for something that he believed because of his radical conversion to Christ. And this is how John Newton described it. This is such a great way of describing. He said, imagine a man who was told that he would inherit an estate worth millions of dollars. You can see him grinning in his carriage on the way to the estate. Now imagine this man as he rounds the last corner with the estate in his view. With less than a mile to go, his carriage begins to rattle. The axle comes undone and his carriage stops. Now imagine this man with his estate in sight, inspecting his carriage and realizing that his carriage is broken. What a fool we would think that man, Newton said, if we saw him wringing his hands and blurbering out through tears for the remaining mile. Oh no, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken. He would be a fool. Why? Because just ahead is a greater fortune than we could ever possibly imagine. Our pain now is only light and momentary compared to what is ahead for us. Again, I don't mean to make light of your pain or say it's only like a broken carriage wheel. I'm saying because he lives, it's temporary. It's temporary. Last of all, because he lives, living for him is the only wise choice. Verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If Jesus resurrected, what we do with Jesus and for Jesus is all that matters in this life. I'm going to say that again. If Jesus resurrected, if we believe that to be true, what we do with Jesus and for Jesus is all that matters. Famous saying that I was taught as a child, only one life to live it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's all that matters in this life. If Jesus is resurrected, that is true. What you do with him is the most important decision of your life. There's only one Savior who has come into this earth, has overcome the curse of death for us by dying under it in our place and then rising again. And what you do with him determines whether death for you is permanent or whether it is just a transition. In the Rocky Mountains, there is an area there, a famous dividing line, and it's marked there by a big sign. Maybe some of you have been there before. All the water that falls to the east of that line flows downward to the Gulf Coast or to the Atlantic Ocean. Everything that falls to the west of that sign falls into rivers and streams that eventually fall into the Pacific Ocean. That means two raindrops falling side by side in the sky Only inches apart land up on different sides of that line and ultimately oceans apart. That same thing happens right here, right now. Seated side by side, inches apart are people who will land on different sides of Jesus. Some of you will land in the unspeakable joys of heaven. Others will end up in an eternal place of death and darkness. Two people side by side, but yet you end up eternities apart. For those in Christ, this world is as close to hell you will ever come. For those outside of Christ, this world is as close to heaven as you will ever come. What you do with Jesus makes the difference between those two. And so this morning, I want to make no apologies about it. I want to give you the chance to respond to the message that you have heard today. I want to invite you. If you have not received Christ as your Lord and Savior, today can be your day of salvation. John 1, 12 says, salvation is a gift unlike any other gift. All you have to do is just receive it. Believe in the fact that Jesus came to this earth, lived the life that we should have lived, that perfect life, died the death we should have died to pay the penalty for our sins and rose again on that third day. That is the Christian message in a nutshell. So there are people here today that will fall on one of two sides of the history of this world. Those who have made the decision to trust Christ and those that have not. Which side will that be for you? Let's pray.